Welcome to episode three of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. So that was, this is, I'm trying to record an intro for the show uh, for episode three. And I got these kids climbing all over me, but I got to get this done or we'll never get the show released. So I was super fortunate to have Sandor Katz agree to be on the show. Stop saying Sandor Katz! Uh, Sandor is the author of Wild Fermentation and The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. The book Wild Fermentation is, it's, it's darn near the most important book I've ever read. It, it really set me on the path of uh, the fermentation thing and opened my eyes to the whole food and food culture that's out there. So... It was really important for me to get Sandor on the show, and I did. And, um, you know, I, I just realized I really stink at interviewing people. Stink? It, it's just not my thing. I'm, I can do a conversation. Interviewing, I just suck at it. But um, I gave it my best shot. Um, yeah, I don't, need, I, don't, I don't even know where my head's at. I just need to get this intro done. Um, what else? The Skype, again, the recording stinks. The Skype cuts in, cuts out. The, there's the Skype ringing, you know, when we're calling in. And, um, there's static over sections of it. I don't know how to edit it. I'm, uh, it's very frustrating. And I will just, I'm just going to post it as it is. I'm just going to put it out there. And, um, Hopefully you can deal with the audio issues. Uh, you know, hopefully you can just fast forward or just whatever. Um, so I guess that's it. Um, here's episode three of... Don't say Dr. Fermento. Doc Fermento discovers the world. Okay, I'm with you. All right. Hi, Sandor. <clears throat> Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on my uh, strange show, Doc Fermento Discovers the World. And uh, I couldn't think of a more appropriate guest for Doc Fermento Discovers the World than the fermentation fetishist himself, Sandor Katz. Well, it does sound like a good show for me to be on. <laughs> Yeah, so just for starters, um, I just we've never really spoken before um, at all, other than by email. Um, your book, Wild Fermentation, radically changed my life. I was uh, a not uh, very healthy person. I was looking for some answers. And I think like 99% of the things I was looking for, I found in that book. Well... I'm 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 honored to hear that. <clears throat> I'm so I'm so glad that um, my book was meaningful for you. Yeah, it started obviously with the fermentation aspect because um, I was looking into getting started canning, and somehow on a search, your book came up, and I didn't really understand fermentation. And then it just reading that book like turned the light switch on for me. I learned about live 
cultures, and not only that, but I mean the living culture that we share our existence together. It was really a ground. It's a groundbreaking. Well, for me, it was a groundbreaking book. Um, can we talk about? Well, let's back up for a second. <laughs> Tell me your story first, a little bit about your background. Well, I mean, let let, let me just say that, like. Um, <clears throat> You know, you are not alone in, you know, people thinking about food preservation and not really thinking about fermentation. I think for, 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 for people of our time uh, who have been raised and indoctrinated into what I call the war on bacteria, um, you know, the idea of intentionally cultivating the growth of bacteria uh, and other microorganisms in our food can be very, very scary, and um, and so we have these uh, <clears throat> we have these processes that really evolved uh, as an integral part of human culture all around the world that have largely been um, abandoned or really relegated uh, to um, professionals uh, and factories um, just over the course of a of, of a couple of generations, and so um, you know as as people. Um, you know, investigate how to become more connected to the sources of their food. Uh, this comes up, but there's just a huge cultural fear. And you asked me about how I got into all of this, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more of the backstory in, in a moment. But what really got me, um, you know, interested in writing about it and teaching about it <clears throat> was the huge amount of um, of fear in, mm-hmm. in our culture that people project onto these um, uh, processes. I mean. People are rightfully, you know, afraid. You know, how do they know what bacteria is growing? Um, you know, how do they know that the bacteria that grows won't be the one that could potentially kill them? You know, how do they know that they won't get botulism from their fermented food? <laughs> I, I have to interrupt you. The very first time, the very first thing I ever made was sauerkraut, obviously, from the book because it's just so easy. And that first forkful, I, you know, it was like, standing on the edge you know just like should i put this in my mouth will i die will i die within minutes or will i suffer in the hospital for weeks and the the ironic thing is that there really is no food safer than sauerkraut um you know according to uh to the usda's microbiologist who is you know, our nation's expert on fermented vegetables, there never has been a single case of food poisoning, um, you know, reported from fermented vegetables. There have been lots of cases of food poisoning from raw vegetables. Um, And, uh, you know, and so, you know, I would say fermented vegetables are actually even safer than raw vegetables. And really these processes evolved for the most part as strategies for food safety because food preservation can't be considered to be effective unless it is safe. Um, So, you know, really in in the entire, you know, vegetable realm of fermentation, there really is no risk of, uh, of, of botulism. I mean, you know, we all know about botulism only because of canning. And, um, you know, canning is sterilizing food. In a way, it's the diametrical opposite of, of fermentation. And, I mean, I'm, I practice canning. Canning is very um, a, a useful um, method. But, you know, canning, if it's not done properly, if, if, if not um, 
uh, if you don't use adequate heat for adequate time, then you can get these sort of surviving spores of this um, uh, bacteria, Clostridium botulinum, that under a perfectly anaerobic, non-acidic condition, which is what you have in non-acidic canned foods, um, can reproduce. But but it's just not a concern in fermented um, plant material, in fermented uh, uh, sausages, uh, if you don't use curing salts, uh, it is a possibility. And actually, the word botulism comes from the Latin word for sausage, botulus. Because until the advent of canning in the 19th century, this was an obscure disease associated with um, uh, with sausages. But in the realm of sauerkraut and fermenting any kind of plant material, um, there's no need to be fearful. The problems that can happen will be abundantly visible to you. Uh, and they involve um, surface growths. Um, mm -hmm. So, so we, there's no need to be worried about, um, you know, invisible threats lurking yeah, yeah. In, in the sauerkraut. But now just, just to address a little bit more, you know, how I got into all of this. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like um, there were a few different stages. Um, uh, you know, first of all, I grew up in New York City and my favorite food as a kid uh, was uh, sour pickles, what, what, what people mostly know as um, um, kosher dills. Um, and uh, so I always grew up with a, um, with a taste for this flavor and, 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 and really a craving for this flavor. Um, <clears throat> so, so, you know, I wasn't really thinking about fermentation, but I was just always drawn to this lactic acid flavor that's characteristic of uh, uh, many types of ferments. Um, then when I was in my 20s, I spent a couple of years following a macrobiotic diet, and macrobiotics places a certain emphasis on, um, you know, eating pickles as a digestive stimulant. And that's when I started sort of, you know, thinking about, um, you know, health benefits and digestive benefits from, um, from fermented foods. And I still wasn't making them myself. But I did start to, you know, notice how they would make me feel and how, you know, even just like the smell of them mm -hmm. would get my, 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 my salivary juices yeah, yeah. flowing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I just started associating them with, um, with good digestion uh, and, and, and good health, but still wasn't doing it myself. Um, but what really got me to start um, playing around with fermenting vegetables myself is when I moved from New York City to a community in rural Tennessee 18 years ago. And um, once I was part of keeping a garden, um, I realized the practical benefit of fermentation. I mean, it, it actually came as a bit of a surprise to me, a naive city kid, <clears throat> that all of the cabbages would be, would be ready at the same time. Um, or that all the radishes would be ready at the same time. So, you know, faced with those um, fleeting um, abundances of, you know, perishable uh, food, uh, I figured out how to make sauerkraut. Um, and, uh, and really, I've been making sauerkraut, you know, continuously uh, uh, for the last 18 years. But that sort of, you know, led me into a you know, let's call it a broader obsession with all things fermented. And I started playing around with uh, yogurt and kefir and cheese making and wine making and beer making and miso making. And, you know, one thing led to another. Um, and uh, and then some friends who uh, live in a homestead uh, where they host a, like an eco education center called the Sequatchie Valley Institute 
um, invited me to teach at an event that they were holding uh, a sauerkraut making workshop. And that's when, for the first time, I realized that there's this huge cultural fear and that, you know, most of us, you know, raised in our time and place, um, you know, regard the idea of leaving food at room temperature to cultivate bacterial growth as very, very scary. And, um, uh, and I, I, it just sort of set me on this mission of um, demystifying fermentation for people and, um, hmm. you know, hel hel helping people move through their fears and, you know, reclaim these processes that are, you know, found, you know, all over the world in pretty much every cultural tradition that have been an integral part of, um, you know, the cultivation of the land, which is, of course, the origin of culture. Um, you know, since since the very beginning. And I think, you know, looking at this word culture, you know, we call the little, uh, you know, community of bacteria that turns milk into yogurt, that turns flour into bread, we call those cultures. And isn't it interesting that we use the same word to describe these little communities of microorganisms mm -hmm. that, we do, that we use to describe... Um, language, music, scientific knowledge, religious belief and practices, and really the totality of all things that people seek to pass down from generation to generation. And I would say that, you know, as a whole, uh, as a group, fermented foods are not some incidental culinary novelty. Um, you know, fermented foods are not cupcakes. Um, you know, fermented foods are, are are an integral part of the, you know, sort of strategies that people in agricultural societies devised to sustain themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, when we hear people's immigration stories, you know, lots right. of people brought their food cultures with them, their sourdough cultures, their yogurt cultures, um, their other, other kinds of milk cultures. You know, these are, you know, embodiments of culture that people do not um, lightly abandon. And yet, you know, in, our, in the last couple of generations um, in, you know, affluent parts of the world, you know, part of our you know, increasing affluence has been, you know, the fact that fewer and fewer people have anything to do with food production. And, 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 and mostly it's been relegated to, you know, factory farms and factories. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that, doesn't that really speak, what you just said there really speaks to the whole, to a much larger problem. Affluence has, re, has continuously and repeatedly throughout history removed us from the key elements of food. We wanted whiter um, grains. We wanted white flour. Only wealthy people could afford that. And you suffer health effects from that. You want a cleaner environment. Well, you get to a point where you won't even allow probiotic, however we want to say it, bacteria in your life. Can you see a, you know, a correlation there with <clears throat> as affluence increases, we become further distant from the actual culture? Absolutely. And I think I think that generally that is regarded as a sign of progress. You know, we don't have to be toiling in the fields to sustain ourselves. You know, in, in, in the United States, um, roughly one person out of 100 is, you know, directly working in agriculture and, um, you know, using technologies that enable one person's, um, um, you know, labor to produce enough food for 100 people. Um, and this technology is turning out to be, um, uh, you know, very destructive. And, um, 
you know, it's, it's destructive to the earth. The food that it's producing is nutritionally diminished. It's, uh, you know, um, destroyed, uh, you know, economic stability. Um, you know, there's all these, there's all these, you know, um, you know, awful repercussions of it. Um, and really, I think that, you know, a much, I'm, I'm not saying that everybody needs to drop what they're doing and, you know, return to, um, you know, an agrarian society. Where yeah, but you know what, maybe they should. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know what I mean? Because if you say it, if you say everyone should, well, still two out of a hundred will or one that you talk to. <laughs> so let's just say, let's just from now on tell everyone that that's what they have to do. Because I'm tired of, I'm, I'm kind of sick of apologizing. This is like my whole course of discovery here. This whole point of this show is everything I was told growing up, I've re now realized is a lie. I was told that the movement from agrarian to the future economy was where it was at. Um, the fact that we could go to Walmart to shop was a beautiful thing. You know, I remember the voice of Paul Harvey soothing me on AM radio that thank God the local Walmart's there for me. And it just creeped into my consciousness and it's every step of the way. Uh, the further I got away from a field, the happier I was because I knew I was on the right path. And then I was just shocked within the past two or three years to wake up and discover that there is no culture out there. Uh, I don't, corporate culture, you know, um, some other culture, people who just have enough affluence to go to events and eat at restaurants and do fine dining. That's no culture. You know, what does Sally Fallon say? Culture is not in the opera house. It's in the farm or, or something like that. You know, it, it's that we look at culture completely backwards now. Well, and if you, if you look at the word culture um, uh, and its etymology, it comes from... <clears throat> It comes from basically the Latin word for cultivation, and um, you know it's 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 cultivation of the land, um, you know, and and things derived from that. And so, you know, certainly fermentation, you know, is 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 an essential part of how people, um, um, you know, basically make the products of agriculture more, uh, you know, more more stable. Um, for 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 preservation, and I mean, I I, I agree with you, um, you know, up to a point. I mean, I just, um, you know, I, I I try not to take a, um, you know, uh, a prescriptive view of telling people what to do. I mean, I think we all need to become more connected to the sources of the food that we eat, and there are a lot of different ways of doing that. And you know, depending on what you know our living situation might be there's different possible ways that we can do that if you have a yard i think the best thing you can do to become more connected to your food is to grow a garden if you live in a city you can plug into a community garden somewhere right right um, yeah. you can put some like window um you know w w pots in your windows with with herbs and uh and tomatoes i mean there are small you know it's it doesn't have to be about about self-sufficiency i mean and 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 really I mean, for a lot of people who might even fantasize about, like, you know, having a farm in the country and being self-sufficient, the steps to get there are not altogether clear. And lots of people yeah. have sort of other things that they've prioritized in their lives. 
Um, so, so I really don't think it's, it has to be about, you know, abandoning all the other wonderful things that you're pursuing in your life. And it's just about, you know, thinking, okay, how can I be part of a re-emergent web of food creators? And for some people, that might just be that, you know, they support local farmers and, and, and shop at farmers markets. And they're part of, you know, an, an economy that's helping to revive local agriculture. For some mm -hmm. people, that might be having a garden or getting chickens in their backyards or, or, or putting in a beehive or, or something like that. Um, you know, for some people, it might be making sauerkraut, uh, you know, or some other fermentation process. I mean, you know, if you you're really doing a service for people who are growing food if you can turn it into something that makes the food that they're growing more stable. So I think that, you know, there are lots of ways that people can, you know, commit themselves to becoming more connected to the sources of their food that don't necessarily yeah. have to involve abandoning everything else that they're doing. We can integrate, you know, this as a positive value uh, and ethic into our lives. Yeah, that's great. That's that's awesome. So the buy-in is actually very low. A potted plant on a windowsill that you could buy at a store. You don't even have to plant the seeds, right? So the buy-in, the entry is super easy. I'm one of these people who gets sidetracked. I think, oh, I, you know, I have to have a homestead. I, I, I must. And instead, I won't even do the little things in the meantime. You know, for a long time, I was that way. So now yeah. I'll just go ahead and put a pot somewhere. I have stuff on the porch. I have worm bins in the basement and outside. Um, and just little things. Do a little vermicomposting and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I'm not very good and my stuff isn't beautiful. People don't, I don't exactly have an agro-tourism business of people coming to see my pots and my Rubbermaid buckets, you know. <laughs> but... But, but start, that, is a, right? that is a homestead. I mean, you know, you don't have to, you know, abandon the city and buy your, you know, sort of, you know, acreage of unspoiled land in the country to have a homestead. A homestead is what you do with it. Um, so, you know, if you are turning your, um, you know, your urban home into a place where you're producing some of your food and, um, you know, um, you know, processing some of the waste that you're generating yourself. Um, you are, you know, you are building positive, you know, ethics for a better world into the life that you're living rather than just, you know, sort of fantasizing about, you know, the life you might live someday somewhere else. And I think that's what really what everybody has to do. Well, how, how did you get to, to where you are in, so you live, what do you, what do you call the environment you live in? Um, you call it a sanctuary or what is the... Yeah. Um, I, I actually, um, I actually am not living at the at the sanctuary anymore. But um, oh, okay, um, uh, eighteen years ago, when I was living in New York City, I just had uh, like a fortuitous um, um, uh, meeting uh, with some uh, people who lived at this uh, homestead in Tennessee, a homestead specifically comprised of uh, queer folks. And that was very interesting to me. And it, it just sort of, um, uh, I mean, I learned about it at a moment in my life when I was like looking to make a huge change in my life. And mm -hmm. I went and visited and it was very enchanting. And um, 
you know, within about a year of visiting, I um, sublet my apartment in New York and left my job and, um, you know, moved down to this, um, you know, community where I got involved in gardening and, um, you know, sort of playing around with fermentation. And um, I mean, I certainly feel wonderful. Uh, I mean, I think it was it was a great move for me in my life uh, at that time. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not, um, you know, against uh, urban people, um, you know, relocating to the uh, to, to, to the countryside somewhere. But I'm also very emphatic about the point that, like, you don't have to um, pick up and move your life in order to, uh, you know, build greater sustainability, greater resilience, greater, um, you know, harmony with the environment around you into your life, that it's just imperative that people living in all sorts of environments, rural environments, suburban environments, and urban environments, um, do that. Hmm. Uh, that's just great. The, the fact that yeah, I think I need to refocus a little bit and realize the potential and these little small steps and um, cultivating that idea with everyone everywhere I, mean, th I go. Thinking about these lofty ideas of <clears throat> sustainability, resilience, um, you know, living, you know, living in harmony with the land. Um, you know, these these can't be things that you have to go somewhere else to practice. These are ethics that really we have to figure out strategies for making them happen where people are and where the infrastructures yeah. already exist. That makes sense. Yeah. Like um, we can't fight the uh, economic imperialism head to head, right? So we don't need to or we don't need to abandon the economy we have in order to fix it. So it kind of ties in with what's going on with the Occupy Wall Street movement in a way. Um, I think a lot of these people that are out there don't have an answer at home. Right? Does that make sense? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm following you. Yeah, if anyone's out protesting, they haven't found an answer for themselves. People well, that are protesting against the government and multinational corporations um, are, are tra trying to grab a, you know, a, a lot of people together. They obviously don't have a good – well, many people do. But I, just I mean I, I completely disagree with you. OK. I mean I, I, I just don't think that you – know, personal I, – I, I don't think that you know, the only reason to engage in political action – is because you don't know how to change your own life. I mean, I, I can tell you that I, I mean, I don't think there's been a year of my life since the 60s when I haven't been to a political demonstration. Mm -hmm. And my life has gone through all sorts of evolutions since then. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I just think, you know, collective action is powerful and important. Um, and, uh, yes, you know, it's right. certainly not like it's not mutually exclusive in any way with personal action. I mean, you have to like both things have to happen. You know, we, you know, we we can make all sorts of personal changes and, um, you know, we still need to create institutional changes and, and, and larger social changes. And sometimes those things will just follow a critical mass of people making mm -hmm. personal choice changes. But, um, I mean, I think that direct action is, you know, really, really important and, uh, you know, sort of 
I think what's happening, you know, on Wall Street and what's spreading to other parts of the the country is mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 giving voice to you know a frustration that's very real and uh, and, and and palpable. And um, <clears throat> you know, some of those people could be going through you know sort of. Um, <clears throat> you know important personal transformations or not and 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 it does not sort of you know diminish the need for uh you know sort of collective action and social change yeah i think i i just the way i said it just came across incorrectly it is definitely about a transformation the transformation what i'm talking about is i wasn't saying a person who protests has no answer what i meant was the idea that we're so far removed from any type of self-reliance or self-sustainability as a model that there's no there is no mechanism in place for people to to move and transform and repair you know things when when we get in trouble there's no social safety net as far as the land and food we, there's nothing there's do you know what I mean? You have wealth, you eat well. You're poor, you eat fast food. If you're really poor, you don't eat. It, there's a, it's broken. This, there's a, the system seems completely fractured to me. <clears throat> so I wasn't saying I don't understand why people protest. I meant I mean, to say I, I mean, I agree and I don't agree completely. Okay. You know, because I keep on hearing about, you know, let's say I just recently heard about a farmer's market where people who go with uh, – with food stamps, with an EBT card. Yeah, that's in Detroit. Um, you get double your money. Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I mean, it's not that I think that there are, there are that there's nothing happening. It's just that there are you know the things that are happening are too small and isolated. I mean, we really need to take that idea mm-hmm. and 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 make that everywhere. But I mean, you know, looking at the realm of you know farmers markets and the revival of of local and regional agriculture. I mean, personally, I see this as a very um, promising development. You know, when I when I was a kid mm-hmm. growing up in the '60s and '70s, you know, they're really like farmers markets were pretty much disappearing, and nobody really minded. Um, um, and, yeah, the advent of and, the and, supermarket and I, was supposed to be the people, most wonderful. Yeah, people all around the country are embracing the idea of you know buying local food and supporting local farmers. And I'm not saying everybody mm-hmm. or the majority, but you know a significant minority of people is emerging. You know, all over the United States and in many places beyond the United States um, that are eager to support small farmers, um, you know, in their, uh, local areas. And it's Mm -hmm. a very promising development. Yeah. Um, You'll even see bigger acts getting involved, whether it be, you know, slow money. I don't know if you're familiar with them or they, yeah, they provide an opportunity or a vehicle for people with small, small, say small food ideas to, um, gather some money in their, in their little community. Um, I was just reading about it a, a little more last night. I just love the idea, you know, um, slow money. It just seems so uh, counterintuitive um, that it doesn't even seem possible. 
Um, hey, I'd l- I'd love to just mention um, my 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 book, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. Yes. Uh, that was published in 2006, which is three years after Wild Fermentation came out. And The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, the subtitle is Inside America's Underground Food Movements, and it's really not just about underground food movements at all. Mm-hmm. What it is about is grassroots food activism, you know, projects that people are doing um, to try to reclaim their food at a, mm-hmm. at a grassroots level. And, you know, much of it is not underground at all. You know, the revival of farmers markets and community-supported agriculture and, and um uh, and just local and regional agricultural systems, but it's also about um, you know dumpster divers and people mm-hmm. who you know um, recycling wasted food resources. It's about seed saving and um, yeah. you know storing that critical piece of the um, agricultural uh, cycle. Um, you know, and, and it's also about um, you know advocacy. And, um, and and activism around things like uh, genetically modified foods and mm-hmm. labeling for them. So, you know, it's, it's just a book full of stories from various grassroots uh, uh, food movements. And they're really people, you know, who I met and got to know as a result of traveling around and talking about uh, fermented foods because... Um, you know the, the the kinds of people who are interested in fermenting food themselves, um, you know, often are also trying to reclaim uh, food in their lives and in their communities. In yes, in- yes. I, I love it. I love the fact that it even gets even a little deeper in that book, where <laughs> literally, like a, a bread maker risks fine and or I don't know imprisonment, <laughs> you know. For selling homemade breads, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I the, the book opens with this uh, little underground food move uh, uh, market right. uh, in a in, in in a town in Oregon, and yeah, I mean, I think um, you know be, because the um, you know the 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 laws that regulate food manufacturing and production are mostly constructed with mass producers in mind, sometimes the the, the, the standards that, that the regulations create make it um, you know impossible for a small informal producer to meet those standards. So you know if you know people who have skills and want to do you know some you know very limited um, you know commercial production to supplement their income. And, you know in that case it was someone who's you know baking maybe 130 loaves of bread every two weeks. Um, um, you know he 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 just found that he he just decided that you know rather than investing the thousands and thousands of dollars that would be involved in. Um, you know, creating a licensed kitchen that would force him to, you know, produce bread at a much uh, larger scale in order to be uh, economically viable. You know, he just decided to maintain a smallish production and do it, you know, hopefully under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think in the case of bread, he's probably not risking, um, you know, arrest and jail time. Right, so right, it's right. the possibility of, 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 of a fine. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, certainly I have heard about people 
um, you know, in some of the other, um, you know, underground food movements who who have been subjected to uh, to, to jail. You yeah, know, and some of it is raw, under... raw milk producers. Yeah, I was going to say some of it is not necessarily underground. It's right out there, and these people are really challenging in it. Like um, in Canada, the um, recent uh, raw milk farmer that was prosecuted there. I think I don't remember his name at the moment. He was found guilty on 13 counts. I think that's probably Michael Schmidt. Yes, exactly. In Ontario. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I mean it's definitely um you know there 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 it, it's it's a battleground. And you know so here you have like a you know a small farmer um milking a very limited number of uh, animals who have access to pasture and there've been no um, you know, food poisoning problems or testing of dangerous bacteria um, in the milk. It's just the idea of it and, you know, the fact that Ontario does not um, allow that. And then there's also a powerful, you know, dairy lobby that's, um, you know, pushing the, um, <clears throat> the, 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 the health enforcement bureaucrats to, uh, to in, enforce these rules. I mean, I think, you know, raw milk, raw milk is interesting. I mean, I drink raw milk every day. Um, I drink goat's milk. Uh, okay. I have, uh, I mean, when I lived, when, 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 when I lived at the commune, I was involved in milking goats um, and drinking their milk. And now that I'm not living there, I have some other neighbors who have a sort of herd share program that I'm mm -hmm. part of. Um, so I, you know, technically own a, a, a share of this herd. So rather than buying the milk, um, you know, the, the people who keep the animals are providing me with a service. Yes, I'm in so, the same, I am in the same program here in Ohio. Where, they're taking care of yeah. the animals mm -hmm. and milking them, and, I, and, and, and I'm paying them for the service rather than buying the milk um, as, a, um, as, as, as a commodity. So mm -hmm. it's you know, kind of important um, uh, distinction. But, you know, there's just so much dogma involved in this, uh, in this raw milk um, discussion because I mean a lot of you know people who the, the public health dogma is that raw milk is intrinsically dangerous mm -hmm. and I do not dispute that you know that that the milk of animals who don't have access to adequate pasture and who are eating mostly grain which is not the diet that ruminant um, um, animals uh, evolved with um, can be very unhealthy and their milk can be dangerous mm -hmm. and pasteurization is really um, a, a reasonable safety like s salvaging protocol for that unhealthy milk but we have to recognize that you know just not only with milk just in general the quality of our food um, is very closely tied to the ways in which it is produced. So, you know, animals that have access to pasture are healthier than animals that don't have access to pasture. So when you have milk, when you have milk from, you know, animals that are generally healthy, generally that milk is safe to, uh, is safe to drink. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we don't have laws, um, you know, preventing uh, the sale of raw beef. We don't have laws preventing the sale of raw oysters. I mean, all of these foods that, you know, people sometimes consume raw mm -hmm. and, uh, and sometimes cook, mm -hmm. you know, we, we leave that to the, you know, individuals who are eating that to assess 
level of risk. That's interesting. I've never even thought of that perspective. You do this to me all the time. Every time I hear you talk, you spin my head around and I, you bring a new angle in. I love that. This we obviously we buy our fish raw, our oysters and our meat, but not the milk. But, you know, we also yeah. eat those things raw at, at our own risk. Yeah, at, right. You're right. I mean, there I mean, it is possible with raw milk from seemingly healthy animals that there that there, you know, could sometimes be a problem with that. milk. Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell you that I have been drinking raw milk, you know, almost every day for 18 years and I have never I've never had an illness from it. Um, and I know lots of people who, who drink raw milk all the time, but yeah. I never just take you know raw milk out of a bulk milk tank from you know animals that have not been right. unpastured that have you know recombinant bovine uh, growth hormone which tends to make the milk filled with pus i mean i would never drink milk out of the regular commercial uh, uh milk supply raw i think the pasteurization is appropriate for that but we have to recognize that there are qualitative distinctions to be made in the foods uh, and beverages mm -hmm. that we, we yes. consume mm -hmm. and um you know we, we can't uh we can't apply the same standards to you know a farm with you know uh, 10 cows on um, on adequate uh, grazing acreage that we apply to a factory farm with you know 10,000 um, you know cows that uh, don't get out of pastures yeah that was and, and really like in the yeah. original debates about milk pasteurization 100 years ago um, the most organized group opposed to mandatory uh, pasteurization was medical doctors who always uh, you know the medical associations were proposing um, regulatory schemes to inspect farms, make sure there was adequate pasture, uh, in, inspect cleanliness protocols, have some standards around that, and then they would certify farms that met the minimum standards. Sure. And in some places, like uh, like in California, there always has been a, a system where you know raw milk was legal to be retailed if it met certain criteria, and. Um, and other milk was pasteurized. And so, you know, it's interesting that in our largest state, this sort of, you know, dual track system has existed continuously, um, you know, without big problems. And, um, you know, I think with, uh, you know, with, with, with a minimal amount of, um, of, of regulation, it's entirely possible to have safe raw milk. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. I love the fact that that always puzzled me. I did live in California for few years I've been back in Ohio for a couple and I was amazed that uh, when I got on the raw food track you know the real food track when I found raw milk in a grocery in a, at a uh, farmer's market I was impressed it was hard for me to imagine a state that size with the bureaucracy they have that that's exactly the point you're right that they do have that dual track modality of that somehow they've managed through all these years to still allow that raw milk production is amazing. Yet it seems as though they're risking falling apart because I recently saw the um, owner of um, Organic Pastures in an interview talk about what it would take to build a raw dairy like his today is nearly impossible. The upfront expense because yeah, I mean, of the incredible been a regulations. Yeah, I mean, there, there, it's definitely been a battle, even in California. I mean, there, there mm -hmm. definitely are powerful 
um, you know, sort of forces opposing the continued availability of, uh, of, of, of raw milk. And so, um, you know, I think that the regulations are, are, are becoming more and more restrictive. And, um, you know, Mark McAfee, who is the guy who, who, who owns um, Organic Pastures, um, you know, has really been a, a, a visible and effective crusader, mm-hmm. but but he's up against some very um, you know sort of powerful organized interests. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the industry. I find it refreshing that I can support some of the in quote unquote big boys like in organic pastors. You might think, well, they don't need my help. Look at the size of that company. They're you know they're rich or wealthy or doing very well or it, though it's almost as if they were like a giant corporation yet they're these are the good guys these are the guys that need our support so it's kind of fun being trying to be you know a little bit of an instigator a little bit against um corporations and things like this to find a large company that's doing it the right way that's fighting a good fight i think that's that's fun and refreshing and something i could I could see getting behind. I like it. I, I love it. Well, good. And by, by the way, I mean they're they're it's a family-owned company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean they definitely have a. I don't know how many cows they have. They have a large herd. You know, they definitely um, uh, you know have a staff beyond their family who, who are helping them. But it is a yeah. family-owned business. It's not. Uh, you know, it's not a large uh, public corporation. Okay. Yeah, I didn't really know their story. I was just surprised. I mean, I saw their product in San Diego. When I was down there, and I bought some in L.A., and then I bought some in San Mateo County. So I always pictured them as being maybe a little bit bigger than they are, or something. So that's an interesting story. I like the uh, the whole raw milk perspective. And um, on the raw but let milk- me just say one one thing about about, about pasteurized milk. Yes. Let me say one thing about pasteurized milk, which is that fermentation is a great way to um, um, bring life back into milk that has been pasteurized. Yes. Hi, Sandor. Welcome back. Oh, okay. I actually I kept talking. I didn't even realize that we had gotten cut off, and I was just talking the whole time. They don't do a good job of letting us know, do they, on Skype? That the call <laughs> went away, but that's okay. We were really. Get, I really wanted you to cover this um, a little more, uh, so I wanted to get back into pasteurized milk. Isn't a dead end street, is it? Right. Well, I mean, I think that you know, if pasteurized milk is what you have access to, mm-hmm. um, Fermentation is a great way of bringing life back into your pasteurized milk. So, you know, making it into yogurt, making it into kefir, um, you know, are great ways of, um, you know, putting beneficial bacteria back into the milk. Yeah, that's great. Um, And the fact that there's actually kefir sold in stores now, too, as well. Um, yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there, there is kefir sold in stores. Um, you know, the sad reality of, as far as I can tell, all of the commercial kefir, although there, there might be some obscure brand that this is not true of, but Mm -hmm. 
they're not made using the traditional kefir grains. Oh. They're made in the, you know, in the manner of, you know, so much, uh, you know, contemporary food production. Um, what, they, what they've done is they've, you know, sort of isolate. You know, kefir is made with these, they're called kefir grains. And they're these uh, rubbery blobs, scobies, symbiotic communities of bacteria and yeast. Um, yeah. And, uh, and these scobies... Um, um, are are these communities of something like thirty different microorganisms, bacteria and fungi? Um, but um, you know what most contemporary kefir is is a few of those organisms that have been isolated and extracted and bred in isolation. Ah, okay, kind of like the similar, would it be comparable to, say, commercial yeast versus a wild sourdough? Is that... Is that... Um, sure, let, let me just tell you that I'm getting a little weird feedback on my side, okay. and I, I, hope that the, I hope that the call is recording okay. It sounds perfectly clear here. If it gets too annoying for you, we can just reset and try to call again. Why, why don't you just do that? Why you, let's hang up hang and up, you want to... Call, call me back. I'll call you back. Okay. Hello. Hi. How does it sound? Much, much better. Uh, it sounds even better here. Um, oh, good. Okay, I'm sorry. Where were we, though? Yeah, so we were talking about kefir and the commercial kefir being produced in a way where it's, um, it's a completely different process than with the scobies or the kefir grains. And then I had mentioned, is it similar to like buying a packet of yeast to make bread versus a wild sourdough? Is that similar yeah, to like how they're doing it? Absolutely. And I mean, that that's really been, that's really, you know, emergence of microbiology in the later part of the 19th century. Um, you know, microbiology's interest in fermented foods has been to, um, you know, isolate the, um, you know, what are regarded as the, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the most active specific microorganisms and, you know, isolate mm -hmm. those and propagate those. And it's, it's, it's exactly analogous to, you know, what we see in herbal medicine where, um, you know, people traditionally have worked with the whole plant, but the sort of scientific approach has been to isolate, you know, what specific <laughs> phytochemicals within the plant right, right. Are, um, you know, are, are active, you know, for whatever the, um, uh, you know, whatever the medicinal... Exactly, uh, whatever that thing impact. is. Yeah. This and is so, so, like, you extract, you know, one element mm -hmm. out of a whole plant and the same thing has happened in fermentation so and even even in yogurt um you know traditional yogurt cultures have um have always been uh, self-sustaining you could yes. you could make yogurt pretty much indefinitely from the same starter mm -hmm. and then just use that the new batch as the starter for your next batch then that for the starters the next batch that with commercial yogurt that you can buy uh, You'll find that after several generations, you're no longer getting nice thick yogurt. Yes, because I've the commercial, this. commercial yogurts are all made using a couple of isolated organisms. Typically, it's Lactobacillus bulgaricus, mm -hmm. along 
streptococcus thermophilus. And certainly with just those two bacteria, you can make beautiful, thick yogurt. But what you don't get is um, um, sort of... Uh, you don't get the culture, so the community, the entire supporting structure, right? Exactly. You don't have like a self-sustaining community that has like a built-in cohesiveness to it. And so after a couple of generations, as other bacteria begin to grow in it, you, you, get, um, you get a sort of dilution and an eventual disappearance of the specific um, organisms that, 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 that you were working with. So, so I mean, really all ferments throughout time evolved as um, self-sustaining communities that people were able to perpetuate. And, uh, you know, in the age of microbiology, there's been this, this, this move towards, you know, isolating the, uh, the, the, the active elements and, uh, and trying to propagate those. And, you know, that, that probably has certain advantages for commercial production, but the great disadvantage is that the communities cease to be um, self-perpetuating and, and, and you start to, you know, need the, um, you know, sort of scientific middleman uh, uh, who isolates and, 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 and breeds the pure cultures. I love the fact that this ties in so directly with health and nutrition and food where we want to supplement, you know, whatever is the, what's the hot thing right now? Oh, it was beta carotene. Take your beta carotene. And then for a few, and then a few years later, they say, uh, by the way, we made a mistake. Don't take beta carotene right now. You know, it's always these isolated micronutrients that, you know, D is the hot one right now, omega threes and, you know, on and on. And it's always one thing. We're always trying to find that isolated one thing to bring in when it's always the culture and the entire community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a real advocate of, um, you know, a varied diet of mostly whole foods. Mm -hmm. Don't mean whole foods, the the <laughs> supermarket change. Right, I mean, right. I mean um, you know, foods in their wholeness. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been recently kind of following out, I don't know if you're familiar with the paleo food or the paleo diet, I'm tinkering around with that. Um, and it's completely based on food, just food there's no I don't you know there's no protein bars for sale or anything like that and uh, I've really enjoyed that aspect of kind of rediscovering food real grass-based farms grass-fed meat you know I belong to a CSA of a grass-based farm raw milk grass-based uh, beef you know and the pastured poultry and all that and it's been revolutionary for um, my, my health and the health of my family for sure getting back to the real whole culture of food. Yeah, I mean, it sounds good. And I, I mean, I agree that that's, you know, for most people that, that that's what they need. I think we're, you know, we live in a culture that loves magic bullets. <laughs> and, you know, we're always looking for, you know, the miracle food from right. the exotic faraway place that's going to sort of like, you know, make everything better. But really, like, we don't need, I mean, I have nothing against exotic foods from sure. faraway places, but we don't need exotic foods from faraway places. I think that, you know, the, 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 the challenge for us in, you know, sort of trying to live more harmonious lives and be healthier and, um, you know, be more connected to the land is, 
you know, figuring out the food resources around us, things that grow easily and abundantly that we can tap into. And this is really, you know, this is what human cultures all around the world did was, you know, sort of figure out strategies for working with, you know, what they could easily grow where they lived. And, um, you know, everywhere on this earth, fermentation was part of the story, whether people were preserving food with fermentation, removing toxins with fermentation, um, you know, making food tastier and more delicious with mm -hmm. fermentation, uh, making food easier to digest with fermentation. But anyway, you know, fermentation is an inevitability. Microbes begin to transform our foods as soon as they are no longer, you know, living things in the ground. Right. And Didn't the question you... is, are <laughs> yeah. microorganisms going to turn our food into something that we will perceive as rotten and want to discard? Mm -hmm. Compost pile? Or can we harness that natural force to turn our food into something more stable, more delicious, mm -hmm. less, less toxic, more digestible and all around the world, um, you know, people evolved strategies for using fermentation um, you know, for uh, um, for those purposes. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's really part of the, you know, amazing cultural legacy that we all have received from our ancestors. And, um, you know, and we really need to maintain uh, maintain these legacies. I can't tell you how many people I meet who have some, you know, vague memory of some fermentation practice that their grandparents used to do, <laughs> you know, whether it was sauerkraut or making wine or making yogurt. Um, but, you know, the grandparent died, the parents didn't pick it up. And, um, you know, so many of these have fallen by the wayside. But, you know, this is our opportunity now to, um, you know, to 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 reclaim those uh, and and practice them, um, and uh, reintegrate them into our lives and into uh, you know the ways that we feed ourselves and uh, and eat. Yeah, that and, was the, the next thing I wanted to move into real quick was affecting change. So, what are the what are the method? What are the things you're doing right now? Are you working on a new project? Um, well, I just a few weeks ago finished writing another book about fermentation. Oh, really? Um, a much a much more in depth book. Um, you know, written with, um, you know, 10 years more experience uh, and also, you know, vastly more opportunity to, um, you know, talk to people about fermentation. So I just have, you know, so many more people's, you know, stories and the benefit of, you know, hearing, you know, what went wrong for people so I can help, uh, you know, anticipate what, what obstacles uh, uh, you might encounter. So I've just finished uh, writing this book. Uh, the title of it is The Art of Fermentation. Um, it will be published by my same publisher, Chelsea Green Publishing, due out uh, next spring, uh, probably April 2012. Um, so, you know, I, I'm actually in the middle of my uh, revisions on, on, on that project right now. Mm -hmm. um, is it available the, for pre-order anywhere? Website, my, my, my website is wildfermentation.com. Okay. And so, um, you know, I mean, f fermentation and spreading, uh, spreading fermentation um, skills is a large part of what I do. I teach workshops uh, on my website. You can see where, where I have workshops coming up. I do some of them near where I live in Tennessee, and I do some of them traveling to other places. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know you have the event coming up in November, and I already have my deposit in, so I'll be there. 
All right. Well, I look forward to I look forward <laughs> to meeting you uh, meeting you in 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 person there. Um, you know, but but I but I I feel like you know my work with fermentation exists in a broader context, and that broader context is the you know urgent imperative for us to reclaim our food and there are just so many ways that people can do that and i think that you know fermentation is one important way that people uh can re-engage um with, with 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 their food with the biological sources of their food um you know every um you know any every living creature on this earth you know, from a bacteria to an insect to a plant to an animal, you know, in the process of feeding itself every day, it's interacting with its environment. You know, people in our, um, you know, modern societies have kind of uh, severed this connection for ourselves. And I think that a lot of the, you know, environmental destruction um, that we see, uh, you know, in the world is just it's a result of this sort of severing of our connection to the land you know it's very possible in 21st century united states to you know not feel any connection at all to the land around you or the environment yes. around you except yes. as mm -hmm. highways and strip malls mm -hmm. and i think that um you know there's there's a great there's a great cost to that so i think that you know food is not the only way but food is one very significant way that um you know people can consciously um, you know, re-engage with the environment around them, becoming aware of the plants growing in their yard, mm -hmm. becoming mm -hmm. aware of bacteria, you know, floating around in the air of their kitchen. Um, you know, we can actively take steps to re-engage with these life forces. We don't have to sort of accept a, you know, severed connection to them. And that's really, I think, our work and our time is, you know, finding ways to reestablish our uh, connections to this, you know, earth that we're part of. Absolutely. That is absolutely fantastic. That's kind of the path I'm on currently. Um, so I want to thank you again for your inspiration in writing the book and being out there. I, every time I see anything you're on, any media at all, I'm always following along. Um, just fantastic. I, I even um, taught my first class just last week. Did a little workshop. Um, All right. Well, that 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 that's great. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you today, and um, I'm so glad to hear that you're 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 teaching and you you have this podcast. You're spreading this information. Um, I don't know. One of my little mantras that I that that I that I repeat is um, don't be an end user. You know, when you find um, you know when you find useful information. Pass it on. Become a teacher. Share it. So I'm so glad uh, to hear that you're doing that, and that's really just what I've been doing too. And um, you know, more of us sharing sharing um, you know valuable information like this. You know, this is how you know this is how we revive our culture. Exactly. Uh, fantastic. Thank you for your time, and I can't wait to see you next month. Great. I look forward to meeting you, Brian. Okay. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you. Bye.